Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. One of the worst things Trump ever did was he convinced beta males that they were alphas. There was no <laughs> way these guys were cucking anybody. You piss everybody off when you make jokes. You say that conservatives don't get the joke and hate you, and the liberals get the joke and hate you. Why does it break down that way? Why isn't the joke funny anymore? People will take any form of mocking, will view it as a personal attack, and then react in kind. What coalition are you forming with being 2% Neanderthal? I know, right? Oh, the dude that say they'll kick my ass on Twitter. <laughs> There's no guarantee whatsoever that you will ever get paid to do this. So when you're going down that road, you also have to factor in, like, more than money, I'm going to be spending time. Hey, welcome to The Create Unknown, the home of Make Something Mean Something. It is TCU's day. We are here live on Discord, just like every Tuesday. I am Kevin Lieber, and with me, as always, is Matthew Tabor. Yeah, we've got a couple uh, a couple guests coming up that one one of whom nobody knows about until you're going to tell them right now, and it's somebody who I've wanted to have on the show for oh just about three years since I started following him on Twitter. He makes the most amazing things uh, that I, I can't even describe how cool they are. The the little miniatures. I told Kevin it's the kind of thing where he'll casually be like, oh, you know, I, I made this thing for my kid, and it's something that that like looks like a master craftsman spent 20 years on it and he probably pounded it out on like Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that that artist is Bobby Duke. So we have Bobby Duke coming up in uh, in three weeks. So uh, he'll round out September. Uh, next week, we have Chris Raygun. Uh, the following week between Chris Raygun and Bobby Duke will be a Matthew Tabor solo episode. So he could talk all about, I don't know, buying 80 pounds of meat or some sort of new card collection. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. That'll be up to him because I won't be around. <laughs> That's right. When when Kevin's away, it's it's either going to be the best episode ever or the worst. It, it's a coin flip. It might be both. It might be both wrapped in one, but I'm excited for it. <laughs> uh, it'll be good. It'll be good. I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to listening to it afterwards. But we have <laughs> a, uh, a great guest tonight, someone that we've known for a long time. Um, but before that, I'm sure uh, we, we'd love to hear about your main gear uh, updates. 
That's right. I'm excited because the workbenches, <coughs> both workbenches are coming this week and that unlocks everything. Um, get the baseboard trim in. I got, uh, I got, I got some art today for the room as well. Uh, a premium photo <coughs> from, uh, a publication called baseball magazine. Uh, in 1940, they put one out of Jim Rawhide Tabor, my favorite, uh, Red Sox player in history. And, uh, so I, so I got that and I'm matting and framing that for decor, but, uh, I hope that solo episode on the 20th is from that studio. It won't be done, but I hope I'm in there. Like you said, uh, Kevin, we've known Lou Perez probably seven years now, maybe a bit longer. He's a comedian who got a start with the wicked, wicked hammer cats at NYU. And then performing in the comedy duo Greg and Lou before producing and starring in everything good on the Webby award-winning YouTube channel, We the Internet. He even earned We the Internet's place on a list of far-right extremist radical content channels, and no one has ever figured out why. His writing has appeared in The Spectator, Spike, The Wall Street Journal, he's produced the TV show Impractical Jokers, but... One of his jokes gives you a better understanding of the mind of Lou Perez than any of those bylines. He says, I love my wife and son, but I have thought of abandoning them because single mothers are heroes. And what kind of man would I be to stand in the way of my wife becoming a hero? In his book, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, which launches today, this podcast is a launch event. It launches today. Lou laments early on that no one sends me funny shit anymore, just links to the latest cringe from establishment shows like SNL, Stephen Colbert, and whatever the hell Peacock is. We've heard this before on this podcast. The 38 wide-ranging vignettes that follow explain why, as he navigates racial identity, whether Apu should be canceled, and how hate speech laws are actually really destructive to the populations they're meant to protect. Lou is in the top five funniest people I've ever met. And upon hearing this, both conservatives and liberals who interact with him on Twitter would probably insist that I must have only ever met six people. If Everybody Hates Chris ran for 88 episodes, Everybody Hates Lou would make One Piece's run look paltry. Lou's comedy is often labeled political, but it really, it really isn't. In the book, he makes the case that speaking truth to power isn't a function of the comedian, let alone the function. He says comedians are supposed to find the funny and go with it. Sometimes that is political, but usually uh, usually it's, it's a little dangerous. He writes that safety will be the death of comedy. And it's easy to understand how somebody who grew up in Queens adoring the comedy of Martin Lawrence, Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Norm MacDonald, and shows like In Living Color might think that. Lou really just talks about life, and despite Kevin and I growing up in an area with a consolidated school district that served several towns at once, well... Lou went to one of those numbered factories for New York City's wayward children, PS 151 specifically. He's one of the very few people who I feel is a New Yorker just like I am. When he tells stories about hardworking parents, it could be about ours. His teen and college years, they sounded a lot like ours too, except, except Lou was a ripped hunk whose sexy body and cut jawline even graced the promo flyers for a gay nightclub. So Lou, we're going to talk about the book and the trajectory of comedy. Uh, we also agree with what you put in the book when you said it's never been easier to prove that you're talented if you are. Uh, but first, you've recently fled New York City for greener pastures. You've escaped like Latinx Snake Plissken. What's your most horrific New York City story? Oh, my God. That was such an amazing, amazing uh, intro, introduction to me. I feel like it, I'm just going to, you know, just 
it's all downhill from here. Uh, th- dude, thank you so much for that, man. The, the most, the, one of the most horrific stories, um, you know, I've seen people getting beat up. I've seen people, uh, defecate on the street, but I think probably the most horrific story that I experienced, it was during the pandemic and it was at a time, I forget how many weeks we were in to restaurants being, basically shuttered and not, uh, not being allowed to have any diners inside. So they were only able to do pickup or deliveries. And my wife, uh, had just had my, my son a few, uh, like, like weeks earlier. And we were walking around our neighborhood and we were going down Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And one of our favorite pizzerias was a uh, table 87. Um, is it table 187 table 87? My my apologies. I'm, one one eight seven would be that would be an edgy pizzeria. Yeah. <laughs> Pizza uh, murder. Yeah, it, <laughs> <laughs> I think Dr. Dre owns Pizza One Eight Seven. Well, it might be, yeah, Suge <laughs> Knight. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, the the Suge Knight cannolis are uh, are just fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I guess it's been that long that I've actually uh, actually forgotten it. But it was a it was a, a great pizza spot, and we were walking by it, you know, basically doing a, a trek that we had done just every day. And this time we go and we look, and what's outside? But two tiny tables with chairs, and we were like, "Wait a minute, this is this is incredible! Like, can we sit here?" And I went in, and I I I, I had my mask on, and uh, you know, possibly like my gloves, you know, like <laughs> rubber gloves. I said, uh, "Can we get pizza? And can we eat outside?" And, she, and the owner said, "Of course, that's what they're there for." And for the first time in however long, my wife and I sat outside on a New York street and enjoyed delicious, warm pizza, and our child looking on. And it felt like, man, things are really looking up. Everything's going to be great. Cut to a few days later. We're taking that same stroll. We can't wait to share that moment again, you know, to recreate that. And then we're walking by and we notice the tables and the chairs are all gone. And it's like, hey, what's going on here? I go inside and I ask the owner, what's going on? And she says, somebody called 311 on us. And we were told that if we have the tables out, they're going to fine us something like $3,000 or $5,000. So in, in, a, in a moment of, this pandemic where just so uh, hope is just, you know, at a, at a low in the city here, we had, you know, something as simple as a pizzeria that was, you know, gave us so much energy and and life for the, you know, brief moments that we were there and able to share outside of it. And a neighbor basically called the cops on this pizzeria and said, (laughs) no, you can't have tables outside. What you're doing is wrong. We're going to shut you down. That I think is one of the most horrific things that I experienced in New York. Yeah. I was expecting the poop stories, not like a soul crushing, incredibly depressing (laughs) pandemic story. (laughs) I thought it was going to be, yeah, I saw this guy take a dump on the subway and someone else uh, break dancing and he slipped in the dump and got all over, you know, (laughs) like some some story like that. Instead, it's just like just dire and hopeless, grim scenario of of people at their lowest in a different way. Right. I mean, if you could, it's wild. If you could choose, I would be like, you know what? I would, I would just schlep through just streets full of shit to get to that pizza. To, <laughs> <laughs> to get to that pizza, man. 
that should be uh, that should be a Yelp review that you leave. I, I can't imagine a stronger testimony that that pizza is good. That's like, yeah, I would walk through human shit up to my hips <laughs> just just to sniff this slice. Exactly. Well, there were all those videos whenever you know New New York floods terribly. <laughs> Of people trying to still go into the subway for some reason, even though there's two feet of water. It's a it's the uh, programming, that, not, yeah. It's, not clean water. It's yeah. kind of brown, sudsy, greasy water. <laughs> uh, who knows what's in that? But um, how long did it take until they were allowed to have outdoor seating again? You know, what was the time span between that moment of? being of having karen call the cops on them and uh and the city allowing people to eat pizza in peace on the sidewalk again yeah you know i forget what the timeline was but i I think it was i think it was upwards of months um and and there was all this weird uh math going on like you could only have like 25 percent sit uh seating indoors Mm. and yeah and the capacity limits yeah so, so you had a number of uh restaurants that had a lot of you know, they had a lot of room indoors that they weren't allowed to use. And then you had other restaurants that had like no seating indoors originally, but then were able to do outdoor seating, you know? So suddenly like they're, they have a lower overhead and now they have all of this, um, this real estate outside that they could use. Um, so yeah, some people, uh, you know, lucked out, I guess on it, but most didn't. That's the greatest city in the world, isn't it? <laughs> That's why, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, so Guns N' Roses didn't play for so, so many years. And then they came back and played at, you know, the video music words or something like that. And, uh, Jimmy Fallon is hosting it and it's, it's such, he, he absolutely ruined Guns N' Roses coming back because he jumped around on stage and he's all hyper because he's Jimmy Fallon in the early days. And he, he has this thing about, you know, like New York's the greatest city in the world. I don't know who honestly believes that anymore. Do you, I, I could, could somebody, do you think somebody could say that with a straight face and be taken seriously? You know, it's something like where, you know, we're supposed to say it, you know, you know like, Hey, I grew up here. I'm supposed, I'm supposed to say it, but you know, something happened where, uh, sort of like the old, you know, kind of tough New Yorker who, you know, mm-hmm. will, will walk through a shit filled, shit filled street. To, to go get <laughs> pizza, pizza you know like they'll do it right like they'll like they mm-hmm. would do it but they'd complain the whole way and say you know what someone's got to pick up this shit this is ridiculous <laughs> i'm willing to walk through it but but you got to clean this up but now you have the new yorker who is going to walk through it and then come up with any excuse imaginable to justify the shit being on the street um and it's something that that i found even though i moved out of the city uh i've kept a, a next door account um for the same for, oh, for the same neighborhood it's sort of like uh you know checking in on an old girlfriend um but <laughs> stalking an ex stalking an ex but but the but the good thing is the ex is in a terrible relationship with like a an awful guy so so it's like yes i won this one i won this one and that's all next door is like uh, you have people complaining about, uh, there's one example, somebody was complaining about, uh, at a subway stop, all of these people lined up sh- shooting heroin in the open. 
And, and they, you know, they, there was just somebody like, you know, I think she was in like her sixties and she's like, you know, I'm really concerned because when schools open up again and, you know, the kids have to take that subway stop and they have to see, you know, this going on and the amount of people in the comments saying they're not hurting anybody, mind your own business. And it's, it's man, what's going on here? You know, mm. how, how, how degraded, you know, are these people that, that, that their first impulse is to you know, go after the uh, the woman complaining about it, rather than say, "Hey, you know what? Um, uh, maybe there's a better way to do the to do this. Maybe maybe there's a maybe this doesn't actually help. You know, make New York the greatest city in the world." Mm-hmm. There's an app like that 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 I'm on. It's not next door, but I, I can't remember what it's called because I don't use the app. I just get email notifications, and it's always somebody. I say always, so there's a new message like once every two weeks, maybe. And every single time it's something like, hi, I'm Angela. I just moved here. And I don't even read the rest of it. I mean, I just think, what are you doing here? Like, it's an invasion. It's unwelcome. I don't want them there. I don't want to know their name. I don't want to see their picture. I just delete the email. (laughs) That's like the one, in, in a way, like you actually have control of whatever border it is. It's like, even if that person is physically there in your mind, no, no, you've sent them away. They, they haven't come into your, uh, into your land. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so in the seventies, there was, uh, like a great stretch of filmmaking that mm. kind of documented the, the seedy underbelly of places like New York city. A lot of these films were, were, well, not, not, I think, wasn't Dirty Harry in San Francisco? I think. Yeah. I think Dirty Harry was San Francisco. Yeah. No. But uh, um, yeah, the point is, is there was this like stretch of like, iconic films that were all about kind of cleaning up cities. Like they had got gotten too dangerous and too foul and too depraved. And some vigilante would come along like Charles Bronson in Death <laughs> Wish and, and take it upon himself to, uh, you know, clean up the, the, the streets. Uh, it doesn't seem like these people want to clean up the streets. Like it's almost like the opposite where Charles Bronson instead is going to fight people who are trying to fight the Charles Bronson of night of 1976 or whatever. Yeah. Like what, what, what happens here? What, what is the 2022 version of a movie like death wish? I I don't even know. I think the, the, 2022 version of that is Charles Bronson is on his laptop and every time like somebody is is pushed in front of a train or a woman is beaten for her purse he says we got to look at the underlying causes of this we got to look at the system man and we got to change the system and all he does is just just comment and just spread that and then you know he'll he'll change his thumbnail every now and then to like whatever new cause it is like that's and the just version. shovel <laughs> shovel Grubhub hub food in his mouth exactly. and type away on his <laughs> keyboard in his underwear about how the people who are assaulted actually um, are not the victims. Exactly. No, the DoorDash receipts, like the expenses of an Uber Eats and DoorDash, really pile up when you have to order the food for your wife's boyfriend as well. <laughs> Once you start ordering for three. You're looking at $80, $90 an order. It's insane. Well, yeah. And, and that whole relationship, like the wife's boyfriend also eats your food, you know, so <laughs> oh, that's, that's right, a big part right, of it. Right, right. 
But you are you are the alpha cuck, aren't you? I am the alpha cuck, sir. That is that is correct. Should I just leave it there and then just let people guess what, what that means? <laughs> Figure it out. That was that the chapter where the footnote uh, was said. Like my wife asked me not to, like to ask me to delete yes. this. <laughs> She's like, you know, wait, wait. This explain doesn't... that for people listening. Uh, yeah. So I have a um, a chapter called uh, Alpha Cuck. And uh, in it, I I explain how you know one of the worst things that Trump ever did was he convinced beta males that they were alphas, especially online. You know, so they're the guys where if you look at their, you know, their uh, their thumbnails, it'll have like an eagle fornicating with the American flag, and they'll come at you. <laughs> um, so you know, one of the things that I miss a lot about about those years was you know being called a cuck. And oftentimes I would, you know, venture down the rabbit hole and check out these guys' profiles and nobody would ever be cucked by these dudes. Like they had like, there's no, there was no way these guys were cucking anybody. And, um, I, I, I've had the desire to like call them out on it and say like, all right, homeboy, come into the, come into my love dojo. And let's see what you can do. But just so you know, I'm going to be there the whole time. <laughs> Making eye contact, breathing heavy on the back of your neck. And it's like, you got to get one thing straight. I might be the, I might be a cuck. I'm the motherfucking alpha cuck. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> my wife's like, mm, there is something. That one. No, but, but hey, it's in there, isn't it? So you overruled her. That's right. I see this a lot on on Twitter with uh, with people really having no self awareness when it comes to judging other people's looks. I don't know if you have run across this as well, but like so often, <coughs> I will see someone who is not a ten out of ten, like ripping on people being ugly, and then their profile picture is right there, and you just click on it, and you're like. Wait, 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 hold on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, I can see what you look like. Why would you say anything about what somebody else looks like? I don't understand that at all. You know, maybe um, I have like I'm too self-conscious myself and maybe these people just are uninhibited and they're just letting letting it rip. But that that seems to be a, a pretty a more prolific than I would have guessed is people sort of making fun of other people's looks while at the same time, perhaps not considering that they're not the hottest people in the world. I'm trying to be like political <laughs> about this. No, <laughs> I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be nice about how ugly these people are making fun of other people being ugly. And I'm like, what are we doing here? No, I, I, I experience that uh, all the time because you'll have, you know, I, it, when you attack somebody's looks, it's like, okay, um, you know, the reality is that a lot of my fans look exactly like the people who hate me, you know? So it's like, if I go after someone's looks, <laughs> then I'm also making fun of fans of mine. It's like, Hey man, you got a stupid beard. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so many of my fans have stupid beards, but I, but I need them and I, I would never insult them. But, but it, but what I find really funny is like when you have people who go and make fun of your looks and then you come back at them and then they call you a bully for doing it. It's happened so many times where, uh, especially like women on Twitter will like make fun of uh, my my forehead and my hairline going back, and I'll respond in kind and say like, "Well, you look like a you know a Grand Rapids four, 
And it's like, how dare you, you freaking... <laughs> Wait, what, what is a Grand Rapids 4? What does that, what does that mean? What does that mean? A Grand Rapids 4 is like a, I think, you know, a Detroit 5, you know, might be like a Grand Rapids 5. I don't know. I'm from New York, man. I'm not, I'm not too sure about the geography here. Um, but, but this okay. one time I said something like that in response to a woman who had made fun of my looks, and she immediately called me a misogynist. And it's like, but wait a minute, you started with me. You started making fun of my, you yeah. know, making fun of my five head. And, you know, this is, <laughs> and this is where we are. I, I wonder if, if a lot of it has to do with just the nature of being online where, you know, you could scroll through, you know, go on Instagram and check out all like Instagram models and, and who are, you know, just gorgeous women who are just out of like anybody's league and just be like, mm, her, her feet, like are kind of small. Mm, ew. No, she, <laughs> she's a, what is it? Like she's a 10, but like her feet are kind of weird. Eh, next. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we have some theories about what Grand Rapids fours look like <laughs> in the episode chat. Thank, thank you, Charles Khan. Thank you. I don't know what you've been sipping, but you've got it all wrong. It's time to commit to the leaf. We've embraced the smoothness and surprising pick-me-up that tea provides. I literally drink it all day long, nearly a gallon a day, and it powers me through research, script writing, and forums on websites that I refuse to name here. But we don't drink normie NPC tea. We drink cultured and refined anime tea from the Dragon's Treasure. Kevin still likes the gunpowder green called Space Cowboy, and I've sampled nearly 40 Dragon's Treasure teas at this point. Lately, I've been slamming black teas like Kentucky Bourbon and Liquefied Berserk Despair. Scottish Breakfast is deep and peaty, and I smooth it over with Sebastian's Morning Earl Grey, which has the best vanilla cream taste I think I've ever had in a cup. Give me a pot of that with a hot meatball sub from Sal's Pizza and Brooks Barbecue Chicken to wash down my last meal on death row. I highly recommend the sampler packs. You'll want to try everything just like I did. I literally have not had one tea that I wouldn't be happy to reorder. The Dragon's Wings membership fuels new tea experimentation and the Tea of the Month Club provides a regularly scheduled surprise. And when you order from the Dragon's Treasure using code CREATE, You'll get 10% off your order. That's 10% off using the code CREATE at thedragonstreasure.com. The link's in the description. Um, there's a phenomenon that you describe in, in the book about Twitter where, like the thing that I said <clears throat> in, the, in the intro about you, uh, you piss everybody <laughs> off when you make jokes. Uh, but the difference is you say that the conservatives don't get the joke and hate you and the liberals get the joke and hate you. And from seeing the replies to some of the, the spats uh, that you get in, <laughs> it's absolutely accurate. How, why does that exist? Why does it break down that way? I don't know. I wonder uh, if I think, you know, everybody has defense mechanisms and uh, it seems like, you know, larger populations um, that are connected, you know, politically or religiously or, you know, something going on there, like tribal have their defense mechanisms. So it's like um, with, with liberals, it's, it's like, you're not funny and you're a bad person for doing, you know, for saying that, you know, so therefore you should, you should be ashamed, you know, and they'll often do the, you know, shame, shame, shame meme. And then with the conservatives, it's like, you're not funny and just, and just, you know, I can kick your ass. Um, and so it's like their <laughs> form of intimidation is, 
you know, physical violence, you know, physical in, intimidation. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't know, maybe you guys have, have a, you know, more, more insight into like maybe where, where that's coming from, but it, it you know, like you said, it, it, it really seems to, in my experience, like break down along those, uh, along those lines. Well, it's, it's weird because what you just described is generally considered the breakdown between masculine and feminine aggression. Mm. So that is pretty interesting. Um, where, yeah, mass, like, like unruly men essentially are violent. And mm. the, these are the men in society who end up in jail. Um, a lot, a lot of the time. Um, whereas sort of unruly women, um, typically will engage in like <coughs> character assassination <coughs> over beating the crap out of you. So it's like, a uh, mean, mean girls think of mean girls. Okay. The whole point mm, of, yeah, yeah. of the movie mean girls, if you're familiar with that or, or Heather's from, mm. from our time, because we're old. Even Mean Girls at this at this point is kind of dated. I don't know what a, is, more, yeah. a more contemporary film illustrating this point is. But, you know, there's this trope uh, amongst really kind of like it, it, like in a meta way, it's it's condensed to teenage girls. So like high school girls, there's the Mean Girls and they band together and they pick a scapegoat. They, they, they pick someone to bully on, um, to pick on, to, to bully and but it's not beating the crap out of them it's um calling them ugly and embarrassing them in front of the boys or whatever it is to knock them down a peg um to shame them and then you know conversely obviously you have uh like hazing amongst males like i'm speaking in very general terms here but there's a reason there's like hazing amongst like frat boys and <coughs> athletes where they will do like physically humiliating things and sometimes violent things to sort of put someone through the ringer. Um, so I don't know if that made any sense at all. No, no, it totally does. And, um, yeah, I think I'm, I do, I guess, um, to myself, I do more of the, the, uh, uh, the feminine bashing like to myself, like I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you look like shit you nobody's gonna like this you know like i do that i do that to myself um so maybe i don't know maybe i'm i'm, I'm more adept at dealing with it when other people do it to me because i'm like well i've already shit myself uh enough i i i have i have slept <laughs> through this shit sidewalk of myself um and and come out you know come out the other side of it um but yeah i don't know but i i think generally people understand those archetypes where you would see somebody like you, that you would generically consider on the conservative side of things be like i'm gonna beat you up boy sort of right that's like the <laughs> yeah. the stereotype there and then on the other side it is more like yeah like you're canceled right mm -hmm. you are ostracized <laughs> from the community you are you're out of the club which is more of like the mean girls yeah style <laughs> rather than so many someone in the are, face there's so much stuff that's like the the instant response like <clears throat> say that to my face in in line at menards and you're sitting there thinking like i i wouldn't 
be shopping at Menards on Tuesday. <laughs> this scenario, it just would not exist at all. Yeah. 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 You wouldn't tweet this to my face, dude. Oh, 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 there was a great, the greatest version of that ever. I don't know if anybody's familiar with, with this because you'd have to be kind of into UFC. Uh, but it was like maybe a couple of years ago now, there was this hilarious thing where uh, Paul Felder, who's a, a former uh, UFC fighter who now does commentary. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he, he got ripped by somebody on Twitter. Some dude, you know, called him, you know, a wuss or whatever, said he sucked. Paul Felder responds by saying, you wouldn't say that to my face. And the guy responds, no, I wouldn't. That's why I'm saying it on Twitter. <laughs> like he was, it was like completely honest about it. He's like, no, I would definitely, you would beat the crap out of me. That's why I'm just saying it over Twitter. Cause I'm, you know, I'm safe here. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. It was like, touche. You know, what could you even, how could you even re respond to that? You just tip your hat, I guess at that point and be like, all right, at least you're honest. Right. At least you're honest. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I do wonder how, but, how many of these, uh, how many of these interactions, you know, would happen in, in real life. But I think something, something happened, especially I noticed during the pandemic where it did seem like there were a lot of online interactions happening in real life. And, and I had experiences where, mm. you know, walking around, uh, in a park basically by myself being yelled at for not having a mask on, you know, like basically being called, a you know, a murderer for not having my mask on outside in the park. And it's like, wait a minute, is this, you know, is this Twitter come to life? Or, you know, this, you know, this, this person who, who thinks it's, um, you know, their job to, uh, uh, you know, to police me, uh, in, in that way. The funny thing is if you were just, uh, if you were just like, you know, a, a 35 to 45 year old male who was <clears throat> creepily staring at nine year old girls at the park, but you had a mask on, everything would be fine. Nobody would say a word about that. Be like, oh, this is just one of those park ogglers. That's normal. This is what the city is about. But you take the mask off and all of a sudden things are very bad. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. Uh. <laughs> Charles Kahn found the Paul Felder reply. It's in the episode chat. So the guy, the guy wrote back. Uh, yeah, he said, "Nope, you'd kick my ass." That's why I said it on Twitter. <laughs> so there, you, there you go. Yeah, it is. But do you think so? So Lou, do you think that the um, that seeping into reality is this? Well, I was safe on Twitter. Maybe I'm safe in real life now. Yeah, I think that's seeping into actual. I yeah uh, so, social interactions yeah i th i think so and and i think i think you see it too with um you know people recording on their cell phones you know like mm -hmm. uh especially if you know kind of uh, getting into a combative situation and immediately pulling out the cell phone you know i i would see you know i would often see um examples of of people who you know were being threatened and their first move is to pull out a cell phone and it's like no 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 you, you your first move should be to get the hell out of there. You know, here's somebody who's threatening you and coming at you. That cell phone might help, you know, in a court case if, you know, if it if it goes that far, but your first instinct should be defense and getting out of there or if you're if you can't get out of there, um how are you going to use your hands, you know, to to defend yourself against this person? So, it's like this it's this weird uh uh, you know, it this weird device that, you know, offers a sense of protection. And I don't know if it, if it offers a, you know, sort of like a, a, this 
I, this semblance of a barrier between you and the action that's taking place, you know? Um, so that ha- seems to happen on uh, like public transportation on, on Twitter. You'll right. see crazy things happening on the subway and somebody's filming it. Usually multiple people have their phones out and filming. it. I think that they really think that they're helping, that they're intervening in a way when this really bad thing is happening by, <clears throat> by recording it. It's like, no, if, if you want to help here, take the, the, like peel the, the crackhead off the elderly woman. Right. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> oh, God. Don't, don't zoom in and like pat yourself on the back that you've got like a 40 X lens on your, on your Samsung. Yeah. Uh, no, you actually have to <laughs> like help out. Stop lighting the scene. You know, stop, stop putting up, you know, get your gaffer and whatever, and just, you know, peel the guy off. Um, actually one of the, uh, a sketch that I, I produced for, um, we, the internet a little while back, it was called, uh, iPhone heroes. And it was about people being recognized for their bravery of not stepping in to help and be good Samaritans, but just standing around, standing outside of the situation and just filming for social media clout and um and and putting it out there and i that that was an example of a of a sketch that i thought would do really well because there were so many of these videos coming out especially in in new york city of you know just that of people just just filming while their you know fellow citizens are being walloped by you know insane people um but yeah didn't didn't do as well as uh, as i thought it would do your your mention of the person defending themselves with the cell phone reminded me of a story from years back in which which is a tragic story uh, this this woman w- was interacting with some guy on the street and you know one thing led to another and she says to him what are you going to do stab me and he did Oof. and she died <laughs> he stabbed her God. to death and so her <clears throat> last words were what are you going to do stab me and then she was stabbed to death it's like uh, it's it illustrates like the most horrific version of what you're talking about right now which is why do people feel invincible? It's a it's a scary it's a scary thing because you're not like you like you said your first in- instinct should be to defend yourself to run away to get help I don't know just not get stabbed perhaps yeah yeah I wonder if right, respond to the situation somehow yeah. I, I wonder if if a lot of it has to do with um, a lot of people don't experience violence firsthand um, that you know I'm, I'm not going to blame it on Hollywood. But, you know, just like the idea of like a lot of the people you, where you see violence is often in, you know, a, a, a fictional scenario where the person, you know, ends up walking away from it. Um, and yeah, I, I think anybody who has, you know, at least a modicum of experience with, with violence just knows how, how bad it can get, you know, and, and, you know, lives are, can be lost and definitely not to challenge somebody, you know, like that. If it, you know, this, so. yeah. This goes back to that that point with psychic pebbles about how not experiencing bad things is not great for you. Uh, and when you're not exposed to bad things or difficult things, I, I do think there's a sense. I do think there's a sense that you are invincible to them. They're they're not that real. You know, you don't have the direct experience with a, with a bad thing, um, and it, it just is fantasy like almost like the way uh you think of a video game you know can be really realistic but it's not real and at no point do you do you think it is Mm -hmm. 
We want to help you make something and mean something. And we say that phrase all the time because when you're making something and you know it means something, even if it's just to you, that's when you feel pretty good about what you're creating. The support for the Create Unknown in recent weeks has been incredible. Animators, artists, musicians, YouTubers, aspiring filmmakers, comedians, it is crazy how talented everybody in this community is. Consider joining the Create Unknown Patreon. Every dollar that comes through goes straight into the podcast and its community. That means more highlights videos. It means a big Minecraft project that's on the way. And eventually we'd like to manufacture custom piss bottles so you never have to leave your battle station. And being a patron unlocks participation in all of our live recordings. You've seen the roster of guests we've had. Having access to their minds is a unique opportunity. You can go to patreon.com slash thecreateunknown or click the link that's in the description. Every little bit helps and your support means absolutely everything to us. Patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. Links in the description. We appreciate you, Space Cowboys. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about jokes that aren't funny anymore. That's the, you know, (laughs) as, as you, you know, uh, pay homage to the Smiths with the, your book title as, as well as, uh, the book cover. Uh, why, why isn't the joke funny anymore? Tell us about like the title and kind of like what inspired you to write it. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, that joke isn't funny anymore. It's off of, uh, the Smiths meat is murder. Um, album and uh something that that i that i found out about about publishing is i wanted to use the uh the lyrics um you know quote the lyrics in in the book and i was told you you can't do that and i'm like oh my god but they're just so perfect and for those of you who aren't familiar with the song it's uh it goes that joke isn't funny anymore uh it's too close to home and too near the bone too close to home and too near the bone and and it and it goes on and um and i feel like that that really just sort of encapsulates the times that we're living in where i feel like so much uh, so much has been personalized and politicized that uh people will take any uh any 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 uh, form of mocking whether it's about you know their politics or um you know any of their belief systems will take it so personally and view it as a personal attack and then react in kind to it um and uh so that that sort of you know is, is where i was uh, where i was coming from uh with that mm-hmm. or their favorite marvel movie how dare you make fun of thor love and thunder <laughs> but it, i mean i joke about that but that is true it extends that deeply to people uh feeling personally attacked over something as like frivolous in the grand scheme of things as movies or tv shows that they like yeah and and i and i feel like there were you know obviously too you know with the idea of that joke isn't funny anymore there was a time when whatever joke we're talking about was funny but now it's like off you know off limits and you're not allowed to talk about that um so i found you know i found that that interesting you know sort of the new sacred cows that have that have popped up um, you know, new third rails as far as uh, what subjects you're allowed to make fun of, and also who is allowed to make fun of those subjects. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that you touch on in a lot of the chapters. the 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 part about who has access to to say something and why, and how convoluted and difficult that can get. Um, the the one story about uh, 
about you uh, encountering a waiter whose last name was also Perez. And it, it was, it was kind of awkward. And the, the really funny part there was you saying that like, he was so s- skeptical of you that, that you thought he might take your coffee cup and send it to 23 and me to verify that, uh, that you're one of the tribe. Uh, but wait, but what's that? That, that wasn't there 30 years ago. Was it, it not in the same way at all? No, you know, I was thinking of, you know, growing up and um, going to PS 151, as, as you mentioned earlier, and it was a uh, school right, right across from the Woodside Projects and right across from the Boulevard Gardens where I grew up. So in the Boulevard Gardens were um, mostly like Irish and Italian kids or like, you know, uh, and New York kids, you know, the, of, you know, Irish and Italian uh, descent. And then in the projects, you had Puerto Rican kids um black kids and i don't even know if like at that time there were a lot of like central americans or even mexicans uh you know coming up and and chinese kids as well so it's like a big mix of 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 people so i was always used to being around different people you know or, or you know people with different backgrounds a lot of them a lot of the kids uh children of of immigrants and you know that's not to say that race wasn't a thing or ethnicity wasn't a thing but there just seemed to be a lot more openness with, uh, you know, it not being the prime indi- you know, the, 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 the prime feature of who you are, you know? Um, and I feel like that's something that's, uh, that's kind of, it's definitely changed. So do you get pushback from people, uh, depending upon a joke that you'll make because of what they think you look like or what your background is and you know maybe you you don't have the the right to make such a joke um i'm trying to think of the the uh if i've the pushback that i've gotten um uh, some something that that i that i notice like sometimes i've been surprised by um like I, there was a time when i was i was making jokes it was kind of uh, in the early days of like 2016 and getting into it with like legit alt right like white supremacists and like them telling me to like go back to Puerto Rico or wherever the hell I was from. And I'm like, I'm like, man, nobody's nobody ever thought I was Puerto Rican growing up. Like, this is kind of interesting. Like, what world is this guy living in where he thinks I'm Puerto Rican? You know? Um, so I've had, you know, like like stuff like that, but that's not necessarily like, you know, pushing back from the people who um, you know, who uh uh you know might be uh, offended by it or say that you don't have the right uh to, you know, to tell those those jokes. Um I, I sort of, you know, I sort of, I don't know, lean into it um, and enjoy, you know, that that aspect of it, because the, the thing is, too, like, like even like the, the whole Latin thing, you know, being Latino, it's sometimes treated as like this monolith, you know, but it's like my dad's from Argentina. That's very different than somebody from, you know, El Salvador, you know, or Honduras. But yet in the United States, it's sort of like an attempt to clump uh, all these different peoples together um you know i don't know to to form like a voting block or, or you know or something like that or a, a coalition um so um i don't know it's probably a roundabout way of 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 saying like i get away with it <laughs> <laughs> what coalition are you forming with being 2% neanderthal i know right the, oh the dudes that uh you know that that say they'll kick my ass on uh, on twitter <laughs> Yeah, you can throw out that you share that same percentage of Neanderthal DNA, and they're like, "Whoa, I didn't realize you were family." Sorry, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Yeah, that that was a that was a trip. I don't know. Have you guys done the the twenty three and me? You guys done that? I uh, I have. Yeah. And that what what have you, what you guys find out? Uh, we did ancestry. Um, and I found okay. out I am extremely Irish. Extremely extreme. It, it basically. Uh, they just mailed me a four-leaf clover. That those were my results. I was like, oh, all right. I was like, I get it. I get it. Okay. I got a I got a potato and some bo- some booze in the mail. <laughs> and uh, those were my results. <laughs> they, they, they gave you a, a pint of Guinness and a, a job yeah, down said, at the docks. Congratulations, you have alcoholism. That's what they that's what they said. <laughs> that's what they said about me. What what about you guys? Mine was very narrow. Um very narrow. Uh 100% um European Caucasian, 71% from the British Isles. Uh the remaining 29% was <coughs> kind of dipped into Western Europe and that was it. it. It's actually shocking to me uh how close to inbred those statistics read when i look at that and i think of how populations have to mix to that many generations down the line uh, coming out with something uh so constrained uh it's tough you have to be extremely selective my theory on this is that only like in my generation have people looked for a husband or wife beyond about a 10 mile radius of their town. Well, that's and what I was going to say I, I, is like, w- when yeah. would you move like back in the day when you had the farm set up? Yeah. You know, when are you <clears> moving? <throat> and, and if you are moving, how far are you moving? Not far. Yeah. No. And both sides have to be like that for it to, to come out so consistently. So I'm, I'm happy that I've got the right number of fingers and toes <laughs> that I, uh, the, the chromosomes check out. Everything is okay there. Uh, but it was surprisingly narrow and I was really disappointed too, because I, I hoped that there would be some kind of connection with the Israelites with, with Mount Tabor being such a, an important part of, uh, both the old and new testaments. And uh, yeah, no, I did. there, there is. Nothing, nothing in the actual bloodline that that takes me that far south. It's nuts. Very hard to do. My people worked hard. They worked hard to love, uh, even if if the uh, girl at the farm next door was a total uggo. They were fully committed, fully committed to keeping this bloodline. But that's how how marriage worked. It was like, hey, you, this family has chickens. We have cows. Okay, we'll get married <laughs> yeah. so that we get some of your chickens and that you get some of our cows. That's literally what grow, marriage was. I grow corn, you grow beans. We're real close to good succotash here, aren't we? <laughs> we are. We just have to marry our, our, our son and sons and daughters, and we can make succotash for the rest of our lives. It's a sweet deal. I mean, in, in modern times, we have like such a warped conception of like finding the love of your life. And- and first of all, yeah. there are still plenty of places around the world where arranged marriage is the norm, where in which you're not going on any dates. Okay. There's no such thing as dates. Your first date is your wedding night. <laughs> That's your first date. Yeah. Um, but going back historically, uh, I read a whole book about, I don't remember what it's called right now, but I read a, I read a book about marriage, the history of marriage. I think it was for the friendship, the Dunbar's video. Uh, Dunbar's number video, 
one of the books that I read for that video was just about marriage. If there's a limited and, limited uh, number of cousins you can sleep with in a or remember sleeping with. <laughs> I forget what the what Dunbar. <laughs> no, that that's Perez's number. That's not Dunbar's number. That's Perez's number. Um, <laughs> no, that's Doctor Oz's number. That was like the thing that was trending on Twitter today. Doctor Oz was talking oh, about like how far removed of a cousin uh, it needs to be. Oh, for really? You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know anything about this. I I didn't look. That's today. his. Oh, that's his said, campaign said, uh, for his campaign. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how this came up. Like, who's asking him about like like cousin wet like husbandry? I don't know. But uh, it came up, and he said anything outside of first cousins is fair game, basically. Um, <laughs> that, that, which okay. that sounds like a pep talk. That like a like a like a <laughs> like a nineties uh, teen movie. Where it's sort of like, you know, it's called like, uh, you know, family reunion, bros out. You know, it's like, look, boys. <laughs> yeah. If you're wondering what the rules Anything are. Anything after first cousins is is <laughs> fair game. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't even know how, how we, we got there. Oh, yeah. Marriage. So anyway, yeah, nobody was moving. And, uh, you know, you married whoever had a good uh opposite agriculture as as your family and that was pretty much it that's how it works recently i I shared um a clip on on instagram of i I was at freedom fest and i was talking on a panel about about satire and i brought up that i i found out that i was like 4.8 percent indigenous and i made a joke like you know that means you're all on stolen land you know i i own four i own 4.8 percent of that and uh you know (laughs) <laughs> it went over well with the crowd and I posted it on Instagram and like the oh. same day, uh, a guy got very upset with me for joking around about that. And he was somebody, I guess, who had, you know, quite a bit of indigenous, uh, uh, DNA. And he pointed out, he's like, yeah, that 4.8%, that's because, that's because your ancestors were raped. Like he was so, he was so sure that that i mean it's possible it's quite pot it's always possible it's possible but i i I told him like no man i did the research and all my ancestors were like really good looking dudes so like all the (laughs) native all the native chicks were really into them i'm like don't worry about it there was no there was no rape (laughs) and he of course got very uh very offended by that um yeah, I feel like that wouldn't help. <laughs> you wouldn't be swayed by that one. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that's definitely not going to, uh, you know, uh, th- th- that revisionist history of the colonial, you know, capture of, of uh, you know, of the Americas. Uh, but yeah, he got very, he got very upset uh, about it. So. I mean, it's a, I was going to reference oh, your ahead. favorite, one of your favorite movies, Matt, Dances with Wolves. Did you ever see Dances with Wolves? Come on, Kevin Costner and that. Native woman fell madly in love. Well, she was white. Oh, right. Stands with the stands with the fist was white and taken as a baby. But but it's it, actually it's a really important uh, part in that movie. That's also um, I, I feel like it undergirds uh, a bunch of the chapters in in your book, Lou, where it's like, what is somebody's identity there, and is that is that woman who has lived her entire life one way, which by the way, the first great American novel last of the Mohicans is that exact same scenario where a child <coughs> has grown up, uh, who happens to be white but for in every possible way he has lived, uh, as, as a Mohican. So 
you know, what, what does that make you? Uh, and it's, it's this constant theme that people are obsessed about that runs into that line that you had about safety killing comedy. If, if you can't, uh, if you can't talk about anything confidently or proudly or critically, just anything positive or negative related to this stuff, how can you be funny about it? Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I totally agree. And there's, um, like I, I make, I made this joke saying that when I found out that I was part indigenous, I started to really understand the progressive argument against naming sports teams after Native Americans. Like it is offensive to name sports teams after Native Americans because sports teams should be named after winners. And <laughs> the Native Americans have a lot of L's and not too many W's. And I said that I could say that because I'm 4.8% indigenous. You can say it because it's true. And, you know, just, you know, giving people, you know, just giving people the license to, you know, speak the truth, bro. It's fair game, man. Anything outside of your first cousin. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Uh, you you had a section about uh, contrasting Hannah Gadsby's shows <clears throat> with Dave Chappelle's, and you've got these two completely different approaches to comedy. And a whole lot of people seem to enjoy both. Uh, do you think there were there's a, a Venn diagram that crossed over where there's a, a subset of people who who uh, when I say enjoyed both, I mean separately. So <laughs> right. two different groups, you know, group A. <laughs> right? But is <laughs> is there is there a, a subset of people who liked both of those specials? Like you, you pop them on, and you, then that wasn't so so much a, a comedy thrill ride. Uh, but you watch that, and you really love it, and it's important, and it's entertaining. And then the next thing you watch is uh Chappelle's latest and you know you love that is is it possible to do that um i'm sure there's somebody out there uh you know who who can do that i mean one one thing that that i that i tried to do is you know i tried to be honest about uh about Hannah Gatsby in that you know a lot of the judgments that i made about her early on all came about you know, based on like the the clips that were being shared of her you know of like oh here's a section of her show where you know, there are absolutely no jokes whatsoever. And she's, you know, describing this horrific, um, you know, her horrific rape, you know, and it's, and it's terrible. And, you know, just watching that and not having the full context of the show, it's like, 
yeah, what what is going on here? But you know, I I, I took the time to watch both uh, specials, uh, Nanette and then Douglas. And you know, as I admit in the book, and you know, to the chagrin of of the red pilled out there, you know, there are jokes that she has that are really, I think, are really funny, and I enjoyed. Um, but like the caveat is that they were jokes. You know, they were they were well crafted jokes that were there to you know to make people to make people laugh. Um, I think I, I I think what she did to her audience with Nanette was was weird. Um, uh, you know, you and what she admits in, in Douglas is that she sort of tricked all these people to come see a comedy show and then hit them with this, you know, really heavy, um, this really heavy stuff. And, you know, I think there's room to be entertained or to be moved by what Hannah Gatsby does and at the same time uh, enjoy what what Dave Chappelle does. You know, so I think that I think it is um, it is possible. You know, what I what I don't like is this idea that you know Hannah Gatsby somehow has um, either redefined comedy or subverted it so that Dave Chappelle is no is you know can no longer be a comedian or be performing or his style of comedy must be you know um, you know must be attacked um, from all angles and, and you know eventually silenced, um, which is something that I feel like feel like a lot of the people who may look to Hannah Gatsby as as an icon of what you know comedy is now or or entertainment uh are looking to do to somebody like Chappelle. Uh one thing that I think is worth talking about or considering when it comes to things like this is that <coughs> everybody has an opinion now and for better or worse <coughs> and in a lot of ways uh that it, well in all ways it's super un- unnatural you know if we're going to kind of go back a second to when I was talking about how marriage used to work. Well, look at how comedy used to work. You know, uh, you would go specifically to see a comedian that you liked, or at least like if you like stand-up comedy, you would go to a stand-up comedy club to see comedy and you would be in that room and you would either laugh or you wouldn't. And that would be the end of it. Whereas now you could be a person who doesn't even like comedy. Like, I don't. I don't know if we've talked about this too much on this podcast. Maybe we have, but not in a while. But some people just don't like comedy. They just flat out don't. Like, there's a percentage of people who like comedy. Like, we think of comedy as like, well, everybody likes to laugh. Okay, those are not <coughs> synonymous. Like, just because you like to laugh doesn't mean you like comedy. Like, comedy is a specific craft that's designed to make you laugh. But it's not the same thing as laughing at something. So just because you can find things funny does not mean that even more specifically you like stand-up comedy. Like stand-up comedy is a very specific craft where someone is alone on stage with the microphone surrounded by a bunch of people just talking to everyone at the same time. (laughs) Uh, it's very weird. It's a s- super weird thing. Um, and some people with love nobody it. talking back with nobody talking. That's, that's back. a big deal. You don't even yeah. know the guy or girl like it's a stranger. <laughs> like it's just a stranger yeah. on stage talking to a whole crowd of typically like drunk people uh, and trying to make these drunk strangers laugh like it's freaking weird. So. The the thing that's weird now about it is that you'll have people who can and will 
give their opinion on uh, a Hannah Gatsby show or a Dave Chappelle stand up when they don't even like what they do to begin. They don't even like the medium that they engage in to begin with. It is the strangest thing that uh, ostensibly everybody has to hear from people's opinions on a thing that I sh- I'm not going to say they shouldn't have an opinion on, but they kind of shouldn't have an opinion on. Like, you know what my opinion of, uh, I don't know, professional like bass fishing is? Nothing. <laughs> my opinion of professional yeah. bass fishing is nothing. I don't have one. It'd be super weird for me to like go on a Twitter rant about what some professional bass fisher did during a bass fishing tournament well i I have to i have to say um as somebody who covers that extensively i'm very very (laughs) troubled by the by the transphobia in bass fishing it's just out there and it's not funny and uh i will call it out as i see it well i mean i guess (laughs) that's you know i'll give the, the the devil their due in this instance and say that they're commenting on something that they do feel passionate about right which is uh, sort of a cultural topic that the comedian is making a joke about. But the problem with that is that I, I'm not saying everybody doesn't understand this, but a portion of that audience doesn't understand jokes anyway. Like they don't understand. Like when you hear people complain about a comedian saying it's just a joke and they say, you know, nothing is just a joke. Yeah, it is. That's what jokes are. Jokes are jokes. Jokes are jokes. The point of a joke is to make a joke. And the point of, a, you know, I'm not going to use the word to define the word. The point of a joke is to make somebody laugh who was voluntarily uh, in the vicinity of the joke teller. Like, that's how that works, right? Like, you volunteer out of your own uh, free will yeah. <laughs> to subject yourself to a joke teller who then tells you jokes and you can find them funny or not. But for somebody who isn't engaged in that game and you can sit, can consider it a game to say that, that, that it, what they said is not just a joke, I think is ridiculous. It, it's, it's a weird and unfair judgment to make on something that I'm dubious of whether or not they understand the game that's being played to begin with. Yeah, no, I think that, no, I think what you say is really important. And, and I often, you know, I often wonder when I, you know, read like, you know, these think pieces or, you know, just, you know, just following whatever's, you know, trending. It's like, you know, what are these people trying to get out of it? You know, because, you know, like, like you describe, you know, people go to a comedy club, they're going to spend like a good amount of money. You know, they're, you know, they have to uh, spend, you know, t- to get in the door. And then there's usually, you know, a drink minimum or food minimum. Um, they're taking time out of their, you know, out of their day, you know, to, to be entertained. I think for the most part, most people who go want to laugh, you know, like, like you, you know, like you describe, but then you read like these think pieces and it's like, what, you know, what are you trying, you know, to get out of this? And I think a lot of them kind of read like B minus papers in college where it's sort of like, oh man, I got a paper due tomorrow and I haven't done any work on it. Okay. Why don't I you know, analyze this piece of content through a Marxist feminist lens. And then let me write up my 1200 words, hand it in. Okay. I got to be minus, you know, on, on my paper. Um, and yeah. And, you know, I, I, 
for me and something that I sort of was able to like rediscover when I was like, when I was writing the book and, uh, when I was writing it, like there were like stories that kind of popped up that I hadn't thought about in a while. And I'm like, Oh, I, this makes sense with what I'm writing. And it really came down to like, you know, some of the most, you know, memorable times that I've had have, have been around, you know, laughter has been involved, whether it's, you know, going to see, you know, something like going to see a live show or performing in a live show or just hanging out with my friends and, and laughing and just how important that is. And in the book, as I sort of track, you know, life for me, you know, changing over the years from being, you know, a single comedian doing improv and sketch comedy to meeting my wife, to having kids, to, uh, going through, you know, pandemic and, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, you know, down times, um, you know, over, you know, the past few years and losing a friend. And, um, uh, it's like throughout it all that the comedy has been there, you know, that's been like a real, just an incredible tool that I've, that I've had or been blessed with to even in like the worst of times to be able to find a little light in there and, and, and some laughter. Um, so for me, it's like, I think, I think it's important you know, definitely when it comes to politics and culture for comedy to consistently, you know, challenge the status quo and not be afraid of, of taking on taboo subjects. But I think also just in like a, the social element of it, of connection, you know, and connecting with people. Um, I think it's, it's just, uh, it's crucial. And, and, uh, yeah. So, well, real real There's, quick, oh, I'm sorry, Matt, just real quick. I wanted to button what sure. I was saying earlier. And, and that's that the comedy shows are not <clears throat> political rallies. And it seems to me like that's what's being conflated. Yeah. Mm. It's like the comedian is up there to tell jokes. It's not a lecture and it's not a political rally. The jokes are supposed to just be funny. And that's the game. So like a political rally is a totally different game. Uh, so. Mm -hmm conflating those two i think is the problem sorry i just wanted to say that real quick no and it's it's uh more broadly in entertainment as well and i think of in maybe 2015 or 2016 i went to an event in las vegas <clears throat> uh that had bill nye bill nye it drew <coughs> this was at um uh what's it called uh edc Electric Daisy Carnival, I think it stands for. Massive music festival, arts festival that runs for about three days in August in Vegas. And one of the draws that day was Bill Nye doing his thing. And the line was insane. Tons of people came out to try to see Bill Nye. And uh, it, it was a political rally. It was really awkward and disappointing. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, I wanted to see Bill Nye being goofy and funny and charming like he is. Uh, and instead, it was about, you know, stopping this and that with, with climate change and fossil fuels and whatever. And the only way uh, to do that was uh, to support Hillary Clinton and whatever. I'm like, oh, <laughs> man, I'm in. I hold my ass all the way out to Vegas. I'm having a good time because it's Vegas. Um but that was really disappointing because he turned it into a political rally. And I left that uh, at the end of it. I did stick around for the whole thing because I was already there. And I went to a comedy show. And this guy was talking about shitting in the shower and stomping it down, uh, <laughs> stomping it down the drain. And it was amazing. New York City, 1976. So <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> he was going to get a it pizza right after. Awesome. 
<laughs> it snapped me back. It, and I thought this contrast between this horrible political reality when I expected some entertainment. Well, I, I got entertainment and it's not uh, classy stuff, but I love it. I'm relaxed. I'm having a good time uh, in that. That dichotomy was was absolutely amazing there. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to spoil the book here, uh, but toward the end, you make you make a point that if you're going to make other people laugh, truly, truly laugh, uh, it runs the risk of of things hurting, that there's a vulnerability in all of it, probably on both sides, both the audience and the comedian side that allows for real, true humor. Um, is that what what you feel like we're losing? That we're we're pulling out or making things so protected and safe and uh, getting rid of all vulnerabilities and offenses and, and things like that that we can't find things that funny anymore. Um, yeah, you know, to to a certain extent, and I think a lot of it is uh, also kind of wrapped up in um, a fear of of failing too. Uh, and and now failing isn't just like you know you go out there you try a joke and and it bombs and it's like okay you know that sucks but maybe mm-hmm. i could you know rewrite this or you know maybe this bit could be developed you know later on now it's like you know you got up there and you said something and now uh, you know people don't want you to ever be hurt again you know and i think mm-hmm. you know that's something where you know in a world like that risking telling you know telling jokes um is you know definitely going to it's it, things are definitely going to be chilled on that level as far as people you know really putting themselves putting themselves out there um and and trying um and and trying new stuff um so i think you know we definitely need to be a lot more we yeah. <laughs> uh it would be good if 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 the environment was a lot more forgiving you know about this stuff and not looking for uh you know the the next public sacrifice you know, um, yeah. you know, and I, in the, in the book, I, I talk about, you know, the one good thing about cancel culture is the, uh, murder career suicides where, um, <laughs> where somebody, you know, will whip up a mob to cancel somebody else. And then that same mob finds something that this person did and in turn <laughs> cancels them, you know, and it, it, it's happened. Like I've seen it quite a few times, uh, with, you know, kind of like, low-level comedians who seem to be uh you know nipping at the heels of someone uh, you know more uh more established and then it's just turning you know turning against them um but you know i i think i think like in like in everything uh you know risking risking something is is really meaningful and you can you know with i think if you if you were to list everything that that's really just wowed you in life you know especially in the arts there's got there, there's something happened there that this person took a chance and, you know, thank goodness they did, you know, because what would the world be like if, if, you know, everyone just was like, nah, it's, it's just not worth the risk. You know, it's not worth speaking up. And I think that, that also, that also will, you know, spread out into other things. You know, if a comedian isn't willing to, you know, make jokes about, you know, whatever the hot button topics are, uh, you know, um, transgenderism or you know religion or you know specifically islam maybe um you know if they're not willing to you know make jokes about that 
And then you have, you know, people who aren't willing to, you know, criticize, you know, any of those things, or at least, um, you know, have you know, probing conversations about, you know, such topics, then, you know, man, what are things going to look like, um, down the road? I want to, I want to ask about one more, <clears throat> one more thing from the book. And it's, it's a, uh, combo of two things. One I mentioned in the intro, you saying that it's never been easier to prove that you're talented if you are. Uh, and then you talk about developing developing comedy skills and, and you're telling people they just have to grind. And this it's the same stuff that Kevin and I have said on this podcast for I don't know, 160 episodes where it's like, go do your thing and it's going to take a very long time and maybe something happens. And you say that after six months of grinding on comedy, you might have, you might have five tight minutes of material that you're really proud of. Uh, how do you, in, how do you encourage somebody uh, who looks at that and thinks like, why am I going to spend six months of however much hard work to get you know, to get this, this short little set that I, I can do at an open mic. Right. Well, well, well one thing I, I definitely want to plug the fact that, um, Mr. Tabor is quoted, uh, in that same chapter chapter. He, uh, he offered hey, me, he offered me incredible, <laughs> incredible wisdom, um, that you guys as listeners are, are definitely privy to. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, I'm very happy that, it, um, he gave me permission to include some of his, uh, some of his, his very, um, uh, sage advice uh in that in that chapter um you know on the on the subject of you know man why am i going to work work six months for you know five minutes um what i would say especially in the in the comedy realm is to just point to every single comedian that that person looks up to and says well because that's what they did every single one of these comics mm -hmm. started you know from this uh from the same place i would i would take you know legendary clips from the stand-ups who were on Johnny Carson and said, you know, that's more of like a tight five and a half, six, but look how amazing that six minutes is. Even, you know, in some, some stand-up routines years and years later still hold up. Like Rodney Dangerfield has stuff from 40 years. I was going to yeah. mention Rodney Dangerfield when you brought up Carson, because like, Rodney Dangerfield's jokes, yes, are still they, yeah. killer. They, Kill. Killer, killer, yeah. amazing. Look up Rodney Dangerfield clips on YouTube, please. I beg of you, if you haven't watched yeah. them, watch every single Rodney Dangerfield on Carson clip. And unless you're one of those people who hate comedy, uh, you will love it. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And it's like, that's you could do that. You might get close to doing that. You might get close to producing something like that. You know, is it? It's worth the risk and it's worth, you know, the attempt. Um, and, and also, um, you'll know too, I think after a first few times, like, oh, are, you know, are you willing to do this? You know, are you willing to, uh, you know, to get out, to get out there as, as I talk about in the book, you know, um, one of the things about, about comedy is like, you know, there's, there's no guarantee whatsoever that you will ever get paid to do this. You know, there's no guarantee that you will ever even, you know, you might even book a gig and, there might not be a guarantee that you even that even covers your travels, you know, uh, to yeah. to get there. Um, and you know, so when you're you know going down that road, you also have to factor in like more than money. I'm going to be spending time, a lot of time, you know, trying to hone this craft. But you know, I got I got to say, man, when you know when you perform you know, that, those first five minutes that you've spent so long putting together in front of a real audience and they're laughing, 
you're like, oh, wow, man, this, this is magic. This is incredible. I've heard a lot of comedians talk about that, talk about the bombing is worth it for those moments that you get when you're not. What's the opposite of bombing? I, I, is there a term? Killing. Isn't oh, it? oh, killing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. It's weird. Both of those things seem murderous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they do. You're either bombing yeah. or you're killing. Well, it, 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 I don't know. Isn't there a gentle success in comedy? No. Right. Hugging. <laughs> hugging. Why can't oh, I we just hard last night, bro? <laughs> yeah. I hugged down at the comedy store. Um, uh, Lou, we, we, uh, we're going to get you out on uh, this question we've been uh, ending on for a few podcasts now. Uh, but I wanted to throw a little twist at you and see if you would be willing to answer the question as somebody else. I know that you can do impersonations. Uh, I know that you, for instance, can do a spot on Richard Pryor. I don't know if there's another impersonation that you have like in your back pocket um, that you'd like to kind of dust off for this moment, but um, that's up to you. But the question is actually, it's a simple question that's kind of complex. And that is uh, what makes an interesting person? How do you how do you become an interesting person? What do you do to become an interesting person? And and you and you can tell us ahead of time uh, who you're answering as, or or well, not, or just go into. Yeah, it. I mean, I'm just thinking. I have a, a two year old and a ten month old asleep, not too far from me in this room. <laughs> and how, oh, hey, it's time to grow up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> time to learn what daddy does. <laughs> oh my god! What makes what makes an interesting person? Damn, motherfucker, I've been worrying about this shit for a long time, Jack. I'm like, am I high or am I interesting? Goddamn. Goddamn. The cocaine don't make you interesting. Your nose don't make you interesting. The shit you say make you interesting, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be interested, you gotta be. And you gotta be a motherfucker that says says shit. People are like, I don't know where he came up with that shit, but it makes sense. I think something along those lines. I think. <laughs> I wanted to say that in the episode chat, Charles Khan pointed out that the face. Oh, the the people listening to this on audio are missing the face. It's it's this face is spot on too. What is the. Uh, how can they see you do it on YouTube? I know that you do it on YouTube. Oh yeah, I did it in a in a video for a We the Internet. Um, I think it's like something like brave, <laughs> brave comedian makes fun of straight white men, and <laughs> and at the end of it, I pull out a, a Richard Pryor uh, impression. He's really tough to do because I can only do it if I'm saying motherfucker or or <laughs> motherfucker or end shit and and Jack. Goddamn! Yeah, the the jack works. The jack works. Um, all right, so check that video out. Uh, check out some Rodney Dangerfield clips, and of course, most importantly, check out Lou's new book. That joke isn't funny anymore. We will definitely have links to that, but you can you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at uh, any fine fine book retailers. Just look up Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore, and uh, highly recommended from both. Matt and I, big fans of you, Lou. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And congratulations on the book, man. You wrote a book. That's that's a lot of work. Guys. It's a lot of words. Thank you so much, man. Really, uh um it it, it is wild, like the the amount of like the years that we've known each other. Um and uh I've been such a fan of what you guys do and uh 
you know, so much wisdom, um, you know, on your, on your podcast. And I'm, I'm so happy that people are, you know, are getting it and, uh, to many more, many more years. So yeah, sound sounds good. All right, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week with, uh, Chris Raygun followed by solo Tabor and then Bobby Duke to round out September. If you want to support the podcast, please go to patreoncom slash the create unknown and join us. All right, we're out of here until next time. See you space cowboys. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. We make this show with the support of our patrons. 100% of that goes directly to keeping episodes going every week, and the recent support has been amazing. Sidpoke, NRM, Venture Addicts, Weezer Good, you all really do make this show happen. Thank you to the Tots and Dumpster crew, old and new, who save tiny little lives every month. Thank you to our grizzled, battle-hardened child infantry. Clemente De Los Santos, Dan the Latch, Demetrius Andrews, Erica, Farrakhan, Jen Mefasanti, Kevin Menard, Mikhail Steinke, Monahem, Natsu, Penny Peddler, Risebread, Ryan Kinder, Samuel Manser, Sean S., Sean Malone, and Tom Videoger. And a tremendous shout-out to our elite baby gang commanders. Atrocious Guff, Cat, Dojangles, Graham Robertson, James Gallagher, Jeff Davis, Orange Vanilla Coke, Patrick Pister, TCU's personal pilot, Andy, Ryan Carroll, Baseweight, Vinthos, Yetus Deletus, Jonas Walter, Nathan Robinson, Chelksies, and, of course, Trevstead. You are the elite. Thank you as well to our indentured servants, producer-editor Ben Webster, Minecraft mogul Laterman, Discord kitten wrangler Conrad, and producer emeritus Dan Yoshua. Thanks to Baseweight for use of Created in the Unknown for the opening theme. Thanks to Electro Voice for giving us mics to sound good on top of it. And a special thanks to Main Gear for powering all of our PC endeavors. The Create Unknown is an unknown media production in partnership with Studio 71.